Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to our program this morning uh, that entails the launch of the book, The Rabbi of Buchenwald, The Life of Rabbi Herschel Schachter. Before we begin, we have to take a moment to acknowledge the pain that is deeply felt by the entire Yeshiva University family and the broader Jewish people from the terrible tragedy that occurred in Meron this past week. And sitting here today, it is difficult to really engage in anything within this whirlwind that we are all experiencing. And in developing this program, it was initially envisioned as more of a historical and biographical appreciation for the life of Rabbi Shakhtar, his contributions, his impact on the Jewish people. But perhaps from where we sit today, we should all consider this morning not opening, not only opening our minds, but also our hearts and paying more careful attention to internalize the love and the compassion for others of Rabbi Shachter, who demonstrated such heroically, especially during times of tragedy and challenge, and allowing Rabbi Shachter's life to inspire each and every one of us to find some space and some opportunity for deeper compassion within ourselves, so that on a day that we are feeling such significant loss in the Jewish people, we can try to find some way to not fill that void, but to make some contribution to it with a renewed dedication for our own sense of responsibility for the larger Jewish people. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. I have the great privilege of serving as the David Mitzner Dean of Yeshiva University's Center for the Jewish Future. Today's program will open with remarks from Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman the president of Yeshiva University, a towering scholar, a communal leader, Rabbi Berman has passionately worked to bring the values of Yeshiva University to the forefront of the programming opportunities for engagement that we enjoy with the broader community. And today's program is most certainly an expression of that vision. Rabbi Berman had a personal connection and relationship with the broader Schachter family, and so is so fitting that he opened today's program, Rabbi Berman. Thank you so much, Rabbi Glasser. Uh, thank you for uh, organizing this and conceiving and envisioning this, uh, uh, this incredibly impactful uh, event. Um, I have to say that uh, it's really a deep honor uh, to be present and speaking in this context. I uh, was already looking forward to this morning even before I read the book. Uh, but now that I read the book, um, I want to tell you uh, buy it. It is amazing. This is an amazing book of an amazing story of an amazing man. You know, we're taught in Breshit, uh, that when you want to know uh, how to look towards the future, uh, where, are we, where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? Look to your past. Ask your fathers, ask your elders, uh, and they will show you the way. And I feel very much that reading this book uh, is an inspiration uh, to our younger generation to show them the way. You know, we all know some of the great stories of Rabbi Shachter. I'm sure many people here um, already know some of these stories. Uh, And in this book, you'll hear the great detail and much more. Uh, than I uh, previously knew. Um, but Rabbi Shachter wasn't born uh, the rabbi of Buchenwald. He didn't, he went, when he was born, he wasn't told, okay, you're going to uh, insist on joining the U.S. Army. You're going to insist on being in Europe, and you're going to insist on driving to Buchenwald and stay there for 10 weeks. Right? He wasn't born as, as I'm going to work to free Soviet Jewry. Right. This is this. He wasn't born as the chairman of the president's conference. Okay. There's something in him. There's something how he was raised. There's something of his values, uh, of his character, of his skill set, of his interests that drove him to aspiring to have a huge impact, a huge impact on the broad story of the Jewish people. And on each individual person who he met. The way that he was able to think about the global picture, while at the same time f- 
focusing with empathy and caring on the person who's in front of him is emblematic of the values that we are teaching at Yeshiva University today. What we speak about at Yeshiva University, what we speak about for our students is that we want them to be inspired, to become people of impact, that today's opportunities, not just no less than yesterday, but even more than yesterday, especially with global connections and and the Jewish position today, that our next generation has enormous opportunities to play worlds of impact with all levels and access of power and influence at their fingertips. So when I read this book, it's not just reading uh, a nice story. It's not just understanding the history, although this really gives a depth of history of the American Jewish experience in the mid uh, to end of the 20th century. But to me, it's also a book of inspiration that our next generation should be reading. To think about how I think about these core questions about their values and how they too can follow this model to become this, uh, this kind of person uh, with this duality. Uh, of course, the greatest gift that Rabbi Herschel Schachter has given us are his children. Uh, with everything that he uh, accomplished uh, in his life, uh, globally, individually, congregants, uh, his children, uh, who are here with us, are really the gifts uh, to all of humanity as, and to our community. Everyone here who I know is with us uh, this morning shares in that feeling and that warmth and that hakarata tov and the recognition of everything that Dr. Miriam Schachter and Rabbi J.J. Schachter has, uh, has done for us and has accomplished in their lives. And it's really a special privilege to uh, sit here with you this morning uh, with the author, Dr. Rafael Medaf, who just wrote an amazing, amazing, thoughtful, historical, academic book on Rabbi Schachter, on his life, and to sit with Miriam and Rabbi Schachter in this context, just a great a great blessing. Uh, we thank you for sharing for opening up your father's story uh, to us and to enabling us to learn from it and grow from it and be inspired from it. It's a real bracha uh, to all of us and to our entire community. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Berman. Uh, We'll begin today's program with some reflections from Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter, serves as the University Professor of Jewish Thought here at YU and the Senior Scholar of Yeshiva University's Center for the Jewish Future. Both Rabbi Schachter and his sister Miriam, whom I will introduce at the closing of the program, continue to perpetuate their parents' legacy by working with Rabbanim and other communal leaders in nurturing their capacity to impact the broader Jewish people in so many ways. And so it's my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Schachter. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Glasser. Thank you very much, Rabbi Berman. On behalf of our family, we're extremely grateful uh, to you, uh, President Berman, and uh, to the entire Yeshiva University family for hosting this uh, book launch uh, to celebrate the life of our extraordinary father. Um, I have special thanks to Rabbi Dov Winston, to Michal Haas, and to Uri Restreich for putting in a lot of time and effort, uh, particularly on uh, this program this morning, uh, to make sure that it is as successful as it is. I want to thank Dr. Stu Halpern of Yeshiva University Press. This is being uh, published by Yeshiva University Press. Thank Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, uh, who was extremely helpful in bringing us to Dr. Medoff and for his many hours of wisdom and advice. Uh, I want to thank those who were uh, donated to the book to make it possible. And uh, uh, I want to thank my partners. I want to thank my sister, Miriam, uh, who joins us this morning. And it's a pleasure to share the, as it were, podium with her. Uh, we were both uh, intimately involved and totally dedicated to this uh, book to uh, be able to 
uh, commemorate and to celebrate the life of our father. Um, we could not have done it without Miriam, and uh, we're very, very grateful to you. And our other partner was our mother, uh, Alea Shalom. Um, the uh, great uh, sadness, uh, the only one great sadness that I have uh, is that she's not alive to see the publication of this book. She repeatedly asked both of us in the last years of his life, no, 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 wait, where's the book? When's the book? I want to see the book. And we told her it takes uh, takes time and we want to do it right. And uh, Dr. Madoff is a, a responsible historian. And uh, she lived a very long life and for all kinds of reasons, not long enough, but uh, uh, this is one of them. Uh, and I want to thank Dr. Uh, Raphael Medoff. Um, Dr. Medoff wrote an extraordinary book. Uh, we knew beforehand that it would be great uh, because he has such a great reputation as a author and as a scholar. Uh, Shmo Halach Lefanav came highly recommended. Uh, we are extremely uh, grateful uh, to you, Dr. Medoff, for having undertaken this project. Uh, to see the 20th century world of American Jewry and world Jewry through the prism of the life of our father. We did not want this to be a hagiography. We wanted it to be objective, rigorous, academic, and historical. And you produced, Dr. Madoff, an extraordinary, exceptional, and absolutely magnificent book. We knew it would be great, uh, but you, you exceeded uh, our imagination of how incredible this book uh, is. And um, I'd like to inform our listening audience that it is available on uh, kitav.com. Kitav is the uh, distributor of this book. And in uh, Teaneck, where I live, it's available in the Judaica house. I have about four minutes left in my segment. So I want to be brief and just focus on a few points. Number one, I thought it would be appropriate to highlight my father's relationship, our father's relationship, particularly to Yeshiva University. For his entire life, he referred to Yeshiva University as our Yeshiva. Even though for all kinds of, uh, I don't know, uh, strange reasons, uh, it was not my Yeshiva, at least not for the first long part of my life. But whenever he would talk to me or to anybody, uh, he would say, our, our yeshiva. He came to Yeshiva College in 1934. He graduated in the class of 1938. He learned with Ramosha Soloveitchik, uh, went into the Smicha program. And then within the course of a few months, uh, uh, it wasn't even Yeshiva University that it was Yeshiva College and Yeshiva Sabena Yisakal Khanan suffered devastating loss, uh, with the death of Dr. Revel and the death of Rav Moshe Salavejik within uh, two or three months of one another. And it was a time of great crisis within within the yeshiva. And uh, my father hung in there, and then the dust somehow settled. And Rabbi Joseph B. Salavejik uh, came uh, to take over for his father. And there were a whole bunch of guys online, but knowing our father, he, he muscled himself in. He was the first guy in to get smicha from Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. And that, that's the kind of person that he was. He was assertive and he was tough and he was strong and he made history. Um, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik gave more smichas to rabbis than anyone else ever in Jewish history. There's some 2,500 rabbinic ordination certificates that are signed by Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. And our father was number one, the first one who got smicha from the Rav, and he had a long, lifelong, uh, close relationship uh, with the Rav. Uh, he received an honorary doctorate. Dr. Uh, Samuel Belkin uh, gave our father an honorary doctorate. And at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, he was director of rabbinic placement at, at Yeshiva. So his connection to, to YU is, is extremely, uh, was extremely intense. And so it's particularly appropriate, uh, uh, President Berman, and we thank you that uh, DAFCA YU should be the host for this program. Um, I want to just share one story, uh, one very, very brief story that to me encapsulates so much. And that is that um, I, I don't remember if this is in the book or not. It probably is because I knew that uh, Dr. Madoff left no stone unturned. 
that when Miriam and I were young, our parents spoke only Yiddish to us. Um, they felt that uh, we needed to know Yiddish if we were going to want to make an impact or have a connection to Jews wherever they were when we would go grow, uh, get older. And so we spoke, we only knew, uh, we only knew Yiddish. I didn't know a word of English until I uh, went to elementary school. And uh, I remember, I don't know how old I was, maybe five or six or, and uh, probably five, I think it was in 1956 when our father went off to the Soviet Union and he left uh, our mother and Miriam and me alone in the bungalow colony for uh, six or seven weeks and he disappeared. And I remember um, asking my, our mother, Mami, V is Tati. Uh, we called our father Tati, Mami and Tati. Uh, Mami, V is Tati. And Mami answered in Yiddish, Tati is gegangen helfen Yiden. Tati went to help Jews. That was it. Tati went to help Jews. And that was the story of his life. Tati went to help Jews. And we were so taken by this phrase that it's on his matzeva. On his matzeva is a long acrostic, and at the bottom is Tati is gegangen helfen Yiden. And as he went up to the Pamalya Shalmaila, he brought with him all of those Jews who he helped. And that was for us, for his children. It was difficult. It was complicated because V is Tati. Tati spent a lot of time away from us, a lot of time away from us. It, important parts of our lives he spent away from us. But at the same time, it was a source and continues to be a source of great inspiration for us. And... uh I think both of us uh, do what we do and try to do to help from Yidin, to some extent motivated directly, indirectly, somewhere uh, based on the uh, role model that our father was for us. And so we thank you very much for participating. There's a lot more to say, um, but that's as much as I'm going to be able to share at this time. I want to conclude by saying that our father was a very, very dynamic and powerful orator. Uh, when he was, I think, nine years old, I think Dr. Medoff has it in the book. This is a crazy story. He would speak under chuppahs. This Can you imagine this pishural kid, nine years old, they pick him up. He was not tall. I'm just, I'm saying it, Balash and Nakia, right? His children have that propensity. Uh, he was not tall. A little, little kid, they picked him up, they put him on a chair, and he addresses the bride and groom and talks to them about married life. I don't know what he was talking to them about. He was a very prominent orator, and we thought that it would be fitting, and I, we thank Miriam for this idea, that it would be fitting to hear his, him in his own voice as part of this program. So please uh, pay attention uh, to the following audio a recording. Thank you for joining all of you. This is very, very precious and special for us. The most unforgettable day in my life was April 11, 1945. It was on that day that as a young American Army chaplain, I served with frontline troops across Europe and then precisely on that day came upon the infamous, notorious Buchenwald concentration camp. I had heard nothing of Buchenwald until that day. It was only my sad experience to have seen, to have participated in the ravages of war to have seen cities, cities laid waste and homes destroyed and human beings crushed. But especially do I consider it a privilege, tragic and grievous though it was, to have come face to face with the stark, bitter, sordid reality of Jewish tragedy. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, I came upon this hellhole called Buchenwald within a matter of hours after the first columns of American tanks rolled through and liberated that dungeon on the face of this earth. I do indeed consider it a privilege, tragic, sad, to have been among those who literally opened the gates of hell, the crematoria. I saw hundreds of human bodies strewn in front of the ovens that were still hot, the smoke still curling upward, waiting, waiting to be shoveled into the furnaces. How can any human being ever forget such a sight? I stood there in front of those hot ovens, my eyes riveted to that view. I, I, I must tell you that whenever I even attempt to repeat the story, to relive that moment, it is exceedingly difficult to do so. I ran to seek out Jews, to find Jews who were still alive, and indeed there they were in a long series of low barracks. I ran into one after another, and there again, no matter what we have seen or heard, believe me, there simply are no words in the human vocabulary that can even remotely attempt to describe the horrors, the brutal, inhuman horrors that were perpetrated against our people. Within this huge Buchenwald camp, there was one area that was called Das Kleine Lager, the small camp that was reserved especially for the brutal treatment of Jews. I went into those barracks, and there I saw just raw planks of wood shelves on which were strewn scraggly, stinking straw sacks. And there they were, looking down at me, men, a few boys. There were no women in Bochumwald. But I will never forget those eyes, haunted with fear, half-crazed, emaciated, more dead than alive, Spontaneously, intuitively, I felt the only language that I could speak that most of them would understand was Yiddish. And I called out, Shalom Aleichem, Yidin, and Frei, you are free, the war is over. And there they were looking out at me through incredulous eyes. But again, I can't continue, I could go on and on, but... From that moment, I must tell you that my life changed. The impact of that experience was enormous on the whole course of my career. Hearing the words of Rabbi Schachter it certainly uh, puts us in the proper frame of mind to appreciate the impact of his experiences on his own life, and of course, the impact of his life on so many thousands of others. Uh, it is now my privilege to introduce the individual who compiled this work and brought this story to life in such an extraordinary and eloquent way. And that is Dr. Rafael Medoff. He is the founding director of the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies in Washington, D.C., which focuses on America's response to Nazism and the Holocaust. He is the author of more than 20 books about Jewish history, Zionism, and the Holocaust, and we welcome him on behalf of Yeshiva University to our program this morning. Thank you, Rabbi Glasser, President Berman, Rabbi J.J. Schachter, for your words. A book like this is, of course, in a sense, a team project. And so I want to extend my thanks to Dr. Stuart Halpern and his colleagues at Yeshiva University Press, to Moshe Heller and his colleagues at Katav.com, uh, and also for the support of the Schachter family and of the Emil A. and Jenny Fish Center for Holocaust Studies at Yeshiva University. And also special thanks to Professor Jeffrey Gorak for his uh, many insights uh, that he shared 
on um, versions of the manuscript. Thanks, too, to Menachem Butler for his invaluable research assistance, to Michael Bierman for uh, the interviews he did with Rabbi Schachter that provided much important information, and to uh, Shulamit Berger of the Yeshiva University Archives for all her assistance. I chose the title, The Rabbi of Buchenwald, for this book because it became clear to me very early on in the process of researching and writing that what Rabbi Schachter experienced in Buchenwald was not a one-time isolated episode in his life, but as he indicated in, in his own words, as we just heard, it was something which profoundly affected and shaped the entire rest of his life and of his public career. Now, Herschel Schachter, it should be said, was not one to dwell um, too much on the heavy theological questions surrounding the Shoah. He would encounter these questions, of course, in Buchenwald itself, and, um, and especially when he would speak in later years, sometimes he would be confronted by distraught survivors who would say to him, how could this have happened? How could God have allowed this to happen? Rabbi Schachter was not afraid to say, I don't know, to say there is no answer to such a question. Because for him, the most important thing um, about Buchenwald, the lesson to be taken from it was how we respond to Buchenwald, what we would do about it. That was for him the central question. And for, for Herschel Schachter, the answer to that question was very clear. He felt that it was our obligation to build, to strengthen, and to promote traditional Jewish religious observance, to rebuild the J Jewish life and culture that Hitler had tried to destroy. And he committed his life to that goal in the broadest sense. In his professional career, there were, two, there were two points in which this goal of promoting modern Orthodox Judaism um, came to, um, to be a, a, a matter of professional expression. They're kind of bookends to his career. At the very beginning, in the 1950s, when he was the rabbi at the Mashalo Jewish Center in the Bronx, um, and was not yet on the national stage. He and his wife, Penina, hosted an extraordinary series of gatherings uh, around their Shabbos table every Friday night for teenagers from families that belong to the synagogue. Now, these were um, families that were members of the Mashallah Jewish Center, but were not necessarily personally religiously observant, or perhaps we would call them semi-observant. Their sons and daughters would come to the Schachter's home every Friday night after dinner, gather around the table. Sometimes there were 10 or 15 or 20 or more of them every Friday night for years and would spend hours um, engaged with Rabbi Schachter and Rabbi Timpanina in discussions, in songs, in refreshments. And when I interviewed many of these um, former participants in the Schachter home Shabbos experience. They described it as something which changed their lives dramatically. That this was their source of uh, fortification for their Jewish identity, of religious inspiration. They credited Rabbi Schachter's Shabbos table with, um, with convincing them to devote themselves to Jewish communal life, and in many cases also uh, to personally moving to Israel. That was at one end of Rabbi Schachter's career. And at the other end, um, in his final major professional endeavor in the late 1970s and well throughout most of the 1980s, he served as director of rabbinic placement for, um, for Yeshiva University, meaning that he took upon himself the enormous and extremely important task of helping hundreds of young Orthodox rabbis, the, the latest graduates 
from REITs, the YU Rabbinical School, helping them find pulpits and begin their professional careers. So in this way, he really planted the seeds for um, Jewish communities throughout North America for an Orthodox presence that would blossom in the years to follow. Those were the bookends. In between, in, during a long period in between those two endeavors, um, Rabbi Schachter um, emerged as the national figure about whom I will reflect momentarily. But I want to say something further about um, his role in promoting modern Orthodox Judaism in America in the 1950s and beyond. In the 1940s and 50s and well into the 1960s, most leading Jewish social scientists predicted that Orthodox Judaism could not survive in America. They saw it as a relic of the old world. They thought that that Orthodox Judaism with its separate calendar, separate dietary uh, rules, separate garb, it could not um, survive in um, could not survive the socioeconomic pressures of modern American life. They were convinced that conservative Judaism was the wave of the future. And they expected that orthodoxy would be relegated to a small, irrelevant corner of Jewish life, and then by the next generation would have vanished entirely. I mention this because Herschel Schachter was the most prominent figure in a small uh, circle of young uh, men, young Orthodox men, who consciously took a chance, who gambled. When they were preparing to enter rabbinical school in the late 1930s and early 1940s, and when I say they, I'm speaking of Herschel Schachter's close friends, Norman Lamb, Israel Miller, Gil Clapperman, uh, a little older Emmanuel Rackman, and others, When they were preparing to enter rabbinical school, it was a time when a significant number of young men from Orthodox homes were choosing to pursue rabbinical ordination at conservative Judaism's flagship institution, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Primarily for one simple reason, because conservative synagogues were in a position to offer um, better salaries, to offer a living wage, whereas Choosing to go down the path of the Orthodox Orthodox rabbinate in those days meant struggling, knowing that they would have to struggle for survival, take second jobs, endure a lot of hardships um, along the way. So in in choosing to instead go to the um, Rabbi Isaac Elkanon Theological Seminary, Reitz, Yeshiva College's rabbinical school, they were taking a big chance. Herschel Schachter and his friends were were profoundly influenced by by the Rav, Yosef Soloveitchik, as has been noted, and also, importantly, by Rabbi Joseph Lukstein, who was a rare rare type in in the rabbinate of those days, in that he was um, the leader of of an up-and-coming Orthodox synagogue in Manhattan, Kehillah Jeshurun, um, and yet he spoke, as people would say, he spoke as if, it, as if he was a conservative rabbi, which is to say he um, understood the importance of decorum, of proper dress, of, um, of a level of what we today would call Americanization or adjustment to modernity so that, um, so that he provided a model of rabbinic leadership for developing and promoting orthodoxy within the American setting. And it was, um, it was under, the, under the tutelage of Soloveitchik and Lukstein that these young men um, began to emerge as, um, as viable uh, figures in the, um, in the Orthodox rabbinic leadership. But the young men of whom I'm, I'm speaking um, also had the skills and the ambition to go far beyond their, their local synagogues, whether it was the Marshall or Jewish Center in the Bronx or the synagogues to which Miller and Lamb and Clapperman um, uh, ministered. 
these men were cut out for the national stage and, and, and they began to realize it. I want to share with you a picture um, from 19, two pictures, one from 1955, the other from 1956. Let's start with 1955. It's a young Rabbi Herschel Schachter together with the Prime Minister of Israel, Moshe Sharet. What's important to realize about this photo is that it's not what we today would call a photo op. He was not a tourist in Israel who was lucky enough to get a picture with the Prime Minister. Rather, Rabbi Schachter went to Israel in 1955 together with his colleague, Rabbi David Hollander, as a two-man delegation from the Rabbinical Council of America. Hollander was the president of the RCA, and Schachter at that point was the chairman of the Israel Commission of the RCA. They went there um, as um, negotiators. It was a period during which there was a tremendous tension between the Haredi community in Jerusalem and the Israeli government. It was a particular flashpoint having to do with a a certain secular youth club that was opened on the edge of Meir Sharim the Haredi neighborhood in Yerushalayim. Um, and, um, and demonstrations were already being, uh, were breaking out both in Israel and in New York. And Rabbi Schachter went there um, to negotiate, and he did negotiate between the Prime Minister of Israel, the Satmar Rebbe back in New York, the mayor of Jerusalem, and other um, authorities to resolve what was becoming um, for the Israeli government, serious potential social and public relations problem. I think this is the point at which Rabbi Schachter began to see himself as somebody who could, in fact, stand side by side and sit at a table and negotiate um, with a prime minister and, and reach a satisfactory solution. In that case, he brought about the closure of that um, youth club that was causing so much tension. Now let's go to a photograph from uh, 1956. The following year, the Rabbinical Council of America was granted permission to send the first ever rabbinical delegation to the Soviet Union. Herschel Schachter, again, you can see in this picture where the, the letter A, that's Schachter, um, together with um, Gilbert Klaberman, that's He's where the, the B is. Um, Samuel Edelman, uh, Rabbi Hollander, and Emmanuel Rackman spent um, a, nearly a month in the Soviet Union meeting with uh, Soviet Jews who had been virtually cut off from world Jewry for so many years. And in this remarkable photograph, actually approaching the leader of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, to press him about the plight of Soviet Jews. In this photo taken just after the rabbis had confronted him, Khrushchev, as you see, his back is turning. He's turning around to walk away from them, but not before he had found himself face-to-face with American rabbis who were not intimidated um, by his power and prestige. And there they were in Moscow at a diplomatic reception, um, going straight to the leader of the Soviet Union to express their concerns. In the years to follow, um, Rabbi Schachter and his colleagues would hold a number of very important positions in the Jewish community. Uh, Gilbert Klapperman, who we just saw, became, for example, the chairman of the Greater New York Conference on Soviet Jewry. Israel Miller, Rabbi Schachter's close friend and fellow Bronx rabbi, Israel Miller was the first head of the the National American Conference on Soviet Jewry. and he was later succeeded in that position by Herschel Schachter. Notice these are not just Orthodox organizations. These are major national secular Jewish organizations. Rabbi Schachter became the first Orthodox Jew to serve as chairman of the, of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, later succeeded in that position by Rabbi Miller. You might wonder why it was that it took so long Um, nearly 15 years after the Conference of Presidents was established, before an Orthodox Jew finally served as a chairman. You might ask, was there anti-Orthodox prejudice, which which, uh, caused that long delay? But I would point to a a different factor. It seems to me from my research 
that many of the leaders of the major national secular Jewish organizations had a perception of Orthodox Jews as being unsophisticated, unpolished, not ready for prime time. They could see an Orthodox rabbi like Herschel Schachter as being the head of some Orthodox organization. But until they met Herschel Schachter, they could not envision an Orthodox rabbi being the national leader of American Jewry. But meeting Herschel Schachter, they found themselves in the company of someone who really had made Americanized or modern Orthodox Judaism um, a force to be reckoned with and a... um, and, some, and, and so, something to be respected and accepted by the wider Jewish community. Here was someone who confounded all their stereotypes about Orthodox Jews. He was articulate. He was responsible. He was serious. He was impeccably dressed. He, they saw him interacting with world leaders. They knew of his visit to Israel, his meetings with Israeli leaders. They knew of the, of the um, visit to the Soviet Union. They understood that he was someone who could, in fact, be a leader of the entire American Jewish community. I want to mention one other um, important aspect of Rabbi Schachter's um, leadership on the national stage. Aside from his chairing and his colleagues chairing of so many um, organizations. Um, And that is his uh, role in um, in the debate over what we today call the Jewish vote. Rabbi Schachter's foray into American presidential politics was something which was um, both unique at the time and which I would argue has um, potentially long-lasting implications. When we speak about the Jewish vote in American presidential politics, usually we look as the prime illustration, we look to the, to the Roosevelt era and the overwhelming um, support of American Jewish voters for Franklin Roosevelt in the 19. Um, 30s, 1940s. But I would contend that for our discussion about the Jewish vote in the modern era, we really should be looking at three other elections at a different period, the elections of 1960, 64, and 68. Here's why. In 1960, when um, then Vice President Richard Nixon ran for president, and in 1968, when Nixon ran again as the Republican nominee, he received something in the range of 15 to 17% of the Jewish vote. In between those two races in 1964, when Senator Barry Goldwater ran against Lyndon Johnson, Goldwater received only 10% of Jewish vote. But in 1972, that changed remarkably in an important way. In 1972, when President Richard Nixon was campaigning for re-election, Herschel Schachter was the, um, the, was the most prominent, important, influential Jewish supporter of the president's re-election. He was head of a group that we um, refer to as Democrats for Nixon, or, as Jew- or in his case, Jewish Democrats for Nixon. He was a prominent media spokesperson, and he spoke um, in a variety of venues and settings during 1972, appealing to American Jews to break with their overwhelmingly Democrat passed, and to cast their votes for the Republican nominee. Uh, And remarkably, Nixon received an estimated 35% of the Jewish vote in 1972, which is to say that he doubled and nearly tripled the number of Jewish votes that Nixon himself and that Goldwater had received in recent years. This was a, a remarkable change Uh, a total, a portion of the Jewish vote, which has been equaled only once since then. What was important about this episode is that Herschel Schachter, for better or for worse, he shattered the stigma that had been attached to the idea of Jews voting for Republican presidential candidates. It was not so much a vote for Nixon and this is important to emphasize because Herschel Schachter was not a Republican. He was a lifelong Democrat. But like a lot of Democrats in the late 1960s and early 1970s, like a lot of Jewish Democrats, especially lower income and Orthodox Jews, there was a great fear um, of the direction in which, in which the Democratic Party was heading. 
They looked at the Democratic nominee, Senator George McGovern, and they saw changes in American society that he seemed to advocate or represent, which were frightening. They saw racial turmoil. They saw a breakdown of what were called traditional family values. And so their vote for Nixon was, in a sense, a reaction to all of these seemingly threatening phenomena in American society. I say that because while I think it's extremely unlikely that a majority of American Jews will in our lifetime vote for a Republican presidential candidate, even a shift from Nixon's um, 15% to his 35%, even a shift like that in the Jewish vote in the future could have significant implications, not in states like New York or California, but in other states that have proven to be very important in close races, Florida, Pennsylvania, um, Ohio. And so in that sense, um, Herschel Schachter um, left an impact or a legacy that could well be felt in the years ahead. Now, in speaking of the divisions in the Jewish vote, I've been speaking about um, disunity, in effect, in the Jewish community. But it is important to realize, and as you'll see this in the book, um, that Herschel Schachter perceived himself and, and, and very much was uh, a bridge builder, someone who sought unity in the Jewish world with all the difficulties that that always entails. He, um, first of all, within the Jewish community, within the Orthodox community, he, while, um, while he was a, a prominent exponent and defender of modern Orthodoxy, he was also careful to build relationships with the Haredi community. I want to show you a, a, a photo, um, rather well-known photo from the late 1970s of Rabbi Schachter with Lubavitcher Rebbe. And expressions on their faces and the anecdotes to which Rabbi J.J. Schachter referred to earlier reflect the fact that there was a genuine personal close relationship between these two um, distinguished rabbis. Um, but in addition to his friendship with Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, Rabbi Schachter also um, frequently met with and consulted other prominent Haredi figures, including, as I mentioned earlier, the Satmar Rebbe and others. But at the same time, remarkably, he managed to maintain very um, important close friendships with a, a number of leading reform and conservative rabbis. He did not allow religious and political divisions to define him and to uh, obstruct him having uh, relationships with Jews across the religious and political spectrum, which I think is a, a singular and uh, very admirable quality. In many of the issues um, on which Rabbi Schachter served as a national leader, um, there was a wide consensus in the Jewish community. And um, so, for example, in his efforts on behalf of Israel, which during the early 1970s, um, uh, in his case, involved mobilizing Jews to protest the Rogers plan. That was an early plan by the Nixon administration that would have forced Israel to go back to the pre-1967 lines. And there was like a kind of a wall-to-wall -wall consensus in the Jewish community that Rabbi Shachter was able to, uh, to mobilize. And as well in the Soviet Jewry struggle um, of the 1960s and 70s and 80s. There was, despite some differences of opinion, but there still was a broad consensus in the Jewish community. Uh, but I do want to draw your attention very briefly to a remarkable, remarkable episode in late 1966 and early 1967, which showed um, Rabbi Schachter's ability to build coalitions and to build bridges. And here I'm referring to a, a controversy that broke out in Israel over the issue of autopsies. There were a lot of reports in the media, in the Israeli media in late 1966, that a number of doctors at prominent Israeli hospitals were going too far in their um, tendency to take organs from bodies, to conduct autopsies without the approval of the family um, in situations where um, they really could have been more sensitive. These news reports triggered angry demonstrations in Israel. That anger spilled over to New York. There were... Um, threats uh, to, uh, by 
uh, Agudat Israel and others to hold to hold demonstrations outside the Israeli consulate in Manhattan. Herschel Schachter perceived at a time when I don't think others did that this was an issue which did not have to be a point of tension between Orthodox and non-Orthodox, but rather this was something which his reform and conservative colleagues and friends could also understand. And so uh, remarkably, he was able to to bring together the leaders of the national reform, conservative, and Orthodox organizations to all join in a combined protest, a joint protest to the Prime Minister of Israel, Levi Eshkol, over the excessive autopsies. And it's clear from the documents that I bring in the book that this remarkable unified Jewish protest had a significant impact on Eshkol and resulted in um, corrective measures being taken by the Israeli government. I want to conclude uh, with a brief word about, um, about why we published, why we chose this time of the year for the publication of the Rabbi of Buchenwald. This is a period um, in which we remember a number of events that are very closely related to the themes of the book and Herschel Schachter's life. Just a few weeks ago, we, um, we marked a Yom HaShoah, Holocaust, a Remembrance Day, which was followed uh, very shortly afterwards by the anniversary of the liberation of Buchenwald and a VE Day, the, the anniversary of the Allies' victory over the Nazis in World War II, and then followed soon after by Yom HaTzmaut, um, celebration of the creation of the state of Israel. That um, arc, that historical arc from the depths of the Holocaust and Buchenwald to the miraculous um, rebirth of the state of Israel was, um, was the, um, the inspiring, um, these were the inspiring events that um, that really shaped the trajectory of Herschel Schachter's life, to which I would add two other uh, miraculous events in which he was able to participate. So we have Israel, and then we have, of course, the, the prying open of the Iron Curtain, liberation of Soviet Jewry, and then the remarkable growth um, of modern Orthodox Judaism in America. Because for Herschel Schachter, those three, Israel, Soviet Jewry, the birth and continued growth of, the, of, of modern orthodoxy in America, these were the ultimate response to Buchenwald. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Menoff. We appreciate your insights, your reflections, and of course, uh, for many of those attending who are wondering how to purchase the book so that you could read the inspiring story of Rabbi Schachter's life, we are posting a link in the chat once again, and it is from Kitab, and uh, we encourage everyone to take advantage of that. The attendance today of over 500 people speaks to how much Rabbi Schachter's life and legacy resonates with our broader community. And among those who are joining us today that I want to acknowledge the presence of is first of all, President Richard Joel, uh, whose vision brought Rabbi J.J. Schachter to Yeshiva University to teach so many of our students and to lead so many of our rabbis over so many years. And I also want to acknowledge the presence of Emil Fish, whose vision and support established the Fish Center for Holocaust Studies, who's under the leadership of Dr. Shai Plitnik, uh, who was very involved in putting together today's program as well. And of course, uh, the Holocaust Center continues uh, to explore many different ways in which our community and our students um, can can connect with such a important uh, aspect of our history and of our story. Uh, To close today's program, so befitting uh, to hear from Rabbi Schachter's daughter, uh, Miriam. Miriam Schachter is a psychoanalyst in private practice in Manhattan, treating adults and couples. And as a faculty member of Yeshivat Chobabe Torah, rabbinical school, Miriam teaches pastoral counseling and mentors students and alumni 
continuing to perpetuate the impact and legacy of her parents as well. Miriam. Thank you, Rabbi Glasser. Thank you all of you for joining us this morning. Even though I've heard these stories many times in my life, I grew up with these stories. Every time I hear them, particularly when I hear my father's voice speaking, I'm drawn in and mesmerized by the power of his voice, by the power of who he was and what he accomplished. My father's activism on the part of the Jewish people was the backdrop of my early life. His larger than life personality, his strength of character, his stubbornness in what he believed to be correct dominated my childhood. In the summer of 1968, I was 16 years old and I went to Israel on a program with the Beis Yaakov of Yerushalayim. That summer, I learned some and toured some, but the incident that has remained with me, that lives in my core, is the day I was walking alone on Rehov King George, down towards the end, toward Yafo, when I noticed a man looking at me. I remember feeling very uncomfortable. The man kept looking at me and then looking away. I didn't know what to do. After a few minutes, he approached me and said, At makira harav shechter? At me'od domalo. Do you know Rabbi Shechter? You very much resemble him. I was startled and confused. And in those few seconds, I couldn't make sense of his question, but I answered, Ken, ani makira ish shekorim lo rav shechter, hua abba sheli. Yes, I I know someone by that name. He's my father. The man burst out crying right there on the street and asked me if my father was alive, if he was healthy, and asked where he lived. This man explained that he was in his early 20s when Harav Shechter arrived in Buchenwald and that my father saved his life by putting him on the kinder transport that went to Switzerland, even though he was way older than the official limit. He told me that my father manipulated the authorities and pushed him onto the train. He asked me to please tell my father that he is married and has four children, and they all owe their lives to Haram Shechder. I was 16 years old, standing on the street in Yerushalayim, listening to a grown man crying, telling me the story of how my father saved his life. My father's image must have been seared into this man's memory if he could see my father's face in mine. 23 years later on Rehov King George, 23 years after the liberation of Buchenwald. My father saved this man's life because of my tati's strength of character and his determination to help Jews. It was hard for me to comprehend the enormity of what this man explained on that day in the summer of 1968. I was 16. In 1970, when I was taking the subway to Hunter College, sitting on the number four IRT train, I looked up and a person sitting opposite me was reading the New York Times. My father's picture caught my attention. The man in the news was visible to me and the headline read, Rabbi who rallies aid for Soviet Jews. I had 2020 vision in those days and I could read the article from across the aisle. The first paragraph described my tati as someone whose efforts on the part of the Jews was as chaplain in World War II and a liberator of Buchenwald. I distinctly remember the wild pride I felt looking across at the New York Times 
and seeing my own father featured as the man in the news. I remember wanting to nudge the people next to me and saying, look, 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 that's my father. It wasn't until I was an adult and, be, and that I really began to have an understanding of the magnitude of what my Tati accomplished in this period of his life. It began to hit me as a 16-year-old, and, it was only, and I was only able to internalize the profoundness of his actions as I got much older. My father was responsible for saving the lives of tens of thousands of Jews. Tati's greatness was that he stepped up. He took action. He made his people's challenges his own. He believed that his actions could make a difference. He believed the world could be a better place if we worked at it. He believed that God's presence could be felt in the world if we brought God into our lives. For me, that is Tati's most significant contribution to his family. He taught us that acting from a place of deep conviction matters. He taught us by example. He taught us by doing. We witnessed his boundless energy, his tireless efforts, intervening where he felt he should. Tati had the unusual ability to see the needs of individuals just as he could see the needs of the Jews nationally and internationally. And Dr. Medoff mentioned this in his beautiful words. He intervened in the lives of individuals as he intervened on behalf of the Jewish people when he spoke to presidents and heads of state. As Dr. Medoff so eloquently wrote in this book, Tati was involved in many causes and organizations and changed the course of American orthodoxy. As his daughter, I'd like to share some of the stories of the individual lives that he touched. Four months after our father died, our mother, who was always and remains to this day the heart and soul of our family, asked us if we could take her to Eretz Yisrael. The summer was nine, the summer, it was 2013, and she was 87 years old. I made a few quick calculations and said, yes, we would take her for a few weeks in August. JJ and Yocheved and our son, Abi went on this memorable pilgrimage. Mommy was a devout Zionist, and we knew this would likely be her last trip to her beloved Eretz Yisrael. We organized a meaningful trip, visiting important sites and people, but by her own retelling, the most significant event was an evening that JJ and I organized, inviting 19 couples to our hotel for what we called an ovent, an evening of reflection and shared memories. I just want to pause and say that there are a number of people on this Zoom call who were there that evening. So shout out to all of you. One member of each of the 19 couples had grown up in the Mashal Jewish Center, the shul where Tati and Mami were Rabbi and Rebetzin. Each of these individuals attribute who they are Jewishly, religiously, and often professionally to our father's and mother's influence on their lives. In 2013, these adults were in their late 60s and 70s. Their families of origin were not observant. These young people joined, as Rafi mentioned earlier, and you can read it in the book, these young people joined our Friday night table every week where Tati taught Torah and Mami provided a loving and accepting environment. Tati was instrumental in sending each of them to yeshiva, finding the funds and convincing their parents that this was the best education for their children. And Mami provided them warmth and her genuine interest in each of their lives and decisions. One by one, they each told, told the story of how Mommy and Tati set the course of their life. Their life. They would not be in Israel. 
their children and grandchildren would not be Shomer Torah Umitzvot if not for the relationship with my parents that began in the 1950s and 60s and continued to the present. The evening was spent with these adults sitting around a large table in the Dan Panorama, a very few kilometers away from where I first encountered that Buchenwald survivor 45 years earlier, telling us how our parents shaped the course of their lives. The theme of our Tati's life, in Mami's words, as JJ mentioned earlier, Tati is gegangen helfen jeden. And the legacy that our Tati left us, his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, is to step up, act from your convictions, make a difference in the world. Thank you, Rafi, for writing this extraordinary book, detailing the public life of our father. It really, as President Berman said earlier, it's really a page turner. Your care for each detail comes through in your accessible and elegant style. JJ, your dedication to this project, the hundreds of hours that you devoted were way above and beyond, but as a result, the project benefited tremendously. And thank you to the YU team for hosting this meaningful book launch. And to all of you, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Miriam, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today. And we hope to have the opportunity to share many more experiences together with the broader community on behalf of Yeshiva University, President Berman, and all of those who worked so hard to put today's program together. Thank you and have a wonderful day.